You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome back to part two of You Can't Say That. I'm your host, Tanya Pinkins, and you're listening to my conversation with Alice Spivak. Alice, I heard a rumor Uh (laughs) that you dated a big rapper. A big rapper? I think so. A big hip-hop artist. Did you ever? No. None? No, I can't think of one. I mean, there were a number of them in my home, but... (laughs) No? You didn't even have a hot love affair with a... With Which an African American. Well, I've had love affairs with African Americans, but I don't remember. <laughs> but an actor, rap- singer, rapper, artist, music recording artist. You mean this was a rumor that just was just a rumor? Oh, I love it. I, I didn't know there was a rumor about. Yes, me. there was. There's usually rumors that about was someone Harry. you were coaching. Was it Harry? Well, Harry. There was always rumors about Harry because we were very close. But were they true? Uh, well, I would say technically. <laughs> <laughs> It's hard to be around Harry. I mean, if he's so handsome. Little. At 98, and, and he's yeah. still handsome. Well, I ha- he's 90. Uh, what is he? Now? I thought it was like 98. No, not yet. He and Sydney are both 90. They're going to be they're going to be 94. 94 in February and March. They're going okay. to be in in the next few weeks they're going to be uh 94. 94. They're, they're six days apart. Wow. Sydney Poitier and Harry. Uh, no, I was with Harry. I would say that we were, you know, working again, similar to with Diane. Uh, I had a very uh, strong, maybe it's the type of coach I am. I don't know. But I mean, I, he was my student. <laughs> we were colleagues. We were writing things together. And uh, we were close, close, close friends. Okay. And uh, I was definitely in love with Harry. Oh. I will say that. And he appeared to be in love with me a few times. But that's <laughs> but I, that we can't understand. But he's not a rapper. Okay. A rapper. He, he he's not, but he's a wonderful I, I guess I could say the name of who it was. Oh, who? But, but I, I, gosh, now I you're I, afraid to because I know a lot of I can write it down. No, had, I could say it. Okay. And then you can uh, It wasn't edit. you and LL Cool J? Oh no! I had okay. never even met LL. Cool okay, so I think that uh, that was just I, a I that wasn't so true. thrilled. <laughs> I heard, I heard you and LL Cool J had Who a thing. That? I, you know, I love it. I've never met the man. Okay, okay, I, he's fantastic. Okay. I, never, never met him. I still can meet him. No, I don't think so. Uh-uh. But I, I, I have had lots of uh, uh, from that. Uh, what is that group? Um, uh, Dirty Rotten Bastard. What was his name? Uh, he was in my club. Oh, uh, is that um, the Wu-Tang? Yeah, the Wu-Tang Clan. Did you take one of I the Wu-Tang? T- I had two of the Wu-Tang Clans as students. Okay. I had Dirty out- Rotten, Old Dirty Bastard. Old Dirty Bastard. Old That's Dirty it. Bastard. I was, I was thinking of Frank's, Frank's uh, movie, Dirty right. Rotten Old Dirty Scott. Bastard. Who was the other one? Uh, uh, oh, the very smart one, um, Q something. Uh, I have a terrible oh God, time yeah, with names. Yeah, the other one, I know. Yeah, tall he's, and- he's got a TV series on Netflix I, where he does science stuff. Well, he's so smart, and he he was a fa- you know he was somebody. The other guy uh, who died, by the way, sadly, I think this old dirty bastard, what his name was, and I had um, um, what's his name. <laughs> 
Combs when he oh, was Sean Combs. Sean Combs How do you was get in all the black people. I don't know. This is why something <laughs> happened to me. I do teach at the New Federal Theater, which is Woody King. Okay, Jr., okay. So I've been teaching there since like the year two thousand, and I used to get, and I don't anymore, which I think is a good sign, from uh, Tanya, from other beautiful. Uh, uh, black women. So how come you were all with all these black people? And, and I went, do you have that black thing? And I'd say, <laughs> so I didn't know how to respond, but I will respond. And I would say, uh, well, one, I'm lucky. I'm just lucky that I have been in that community since early on, since the late sixties to be sure. But earlier than that, I had uh, students that I was also involved, like Arthur Mitchell, mm. who started Harlem school of the dance. And I, I helped Arthur really a little bit during that time to get out of the uh, international world of ballet because he was the only black dancer internationally famous and he felt very odd mm. in Balanchine's company. And he eventually wanted to leave and he wanted to start this magnificent, incredible thing, Dance Theater of Harlem. And I happened to, at the time, also <clears throat> been working with Leon Bibb, who was doing um, kind of a, a revival of Carnival that I was called to coach him, uh, Leon, who I really admired tremendously. Uh, and Leon was one of the very first uh, to as a black person to have a talk show on one of the networks. I can't remember which network, it was a Sunday. And I called Leon and I said, you know, Arthur Mitchell is in my class and he's talking about wanting to start a dance theater and everything. I think you should interview him. And that was the beginning of his publicizing it. Wow. So I was very excited about that. And I was a young teacher. I mean, I just had this wonderful guy in my class and then I knew he was a dancer. I didn't know. I hadn't really been a aficionado of ballet, so I didn't know he invited me to the ballet when he did his last performance. Me and George Balanchine. I was very excited. But anyway, so I've been lucky in that sense. And I think it does come from my background. Because what, what part of your background? Uh, well, where I was born. I was born in a part of Williamsburg, Brooklyn, which was an all-black neighborhood. Hmm. My parents were the janitors in a building, which was all-black, and they were immigrants from Eastern Europe. And to me, <clears throat> to be very honest, I moved uh, to another neighborhood, which was uh, not as it was more of a Italian. Catholic neighborhood, and then eventually went to a high school and moved back into a black neighborhood, which was Bedford-Stuyvesant. So my whole young background was that I believed that everybody's parents came from somewhere else who were white. Everybody <laughs> had accents. They all came from either Italy or Russia, Poland, or, or Lithuania, like my father, my mother was from Russia, and he was from Lithuania, and they never had schooling or anything like that. And to me, uh, the black kids I knew had parents who were born here. Hmm. So I said, oh, they're the, the Americans, because mm. we never felt like we were American. Mm. I really never felt like an American until the 70s, to be honest. Wow. When, and when people would ask me in, in, when I was in Europe, you know, are you an American? I'd say, no, I'm from New York. <laughs> I, I just never felt any connection to it because mm. of my whole background and the, what loomed over it, the, the Holocaust. And prior to the Holocaust was my mother's and father's Holocaust in, in Russia. Uh, so 
I, it, it was the world I lived in. And to me, my first boyfriend, I think, was uh, the, the janitor this, in another building we moved into. The janitor was next door to us. And Junior had a, <laughs> a bike. And a, a, yeah. And he would be, <laughs> I'd be on his bike. So my point is, I simply was, until I came out of that very unschooled, uneducated background, immigrant neighborhoods, I didn't know anybody white whose parents were born here, uh, really. And I was surprised. I had to be around 16 or 17. And then I discovered also when I came into Manhattan, which we used to call New York. We lived in Brooklyn. That was New York. So I'm talking about way back. And so when I moved into New York, because I got engaged, got married, I uh, was discovering that black people were considered second-class citizens. You know, that they were, I said, are you kidding? I didn't know about racism, this, this classic racism growing up. So maybe that's a lot to do with it. Mm. Aside from my total love of everything in art that connects to the black community. To me, the only truly American art form comes from the freed slaves, which mm. is the gospel and the jazz and rock and roll and the, and blues. And the blues. That's truly American art form. Everything else was kind of brought from Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, the only other true American art form were done by Jewish immigrants, which was called Hollywood. And that was <laughs> developed the star system and yes. created movies because they're the ones and the mayors, the Warners, the Ziegfeld's, well, not necessarily Ziegfeld, and the truly American, but Ziegfeld, you see, and all the people doing theater were borrowing it also mm-hmm. from Europe. So the only thing that really developed on this soil, I think, is the uh, is music, black music, mm. that came from the freed slaves, and that was, and the rhetoric. So, and of course the poetry. Mm. I, I mean, there's really, it, 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 there's no comparison. There's no comparison. So I was always enjoying very much when I got to be lucky enough to be involved with a black show or a black movie because there was always much more you can dig into, much more in that pie that you could relish and see and all the sad things and and all the joyous things and everything. So all the movies that I was involved with because of Harry primarily, but because of Diane as well. And uh, I also worked with Diana, who's going to be Ross? on Broadway now. Diana, Diana Ross. Ross, yes. What did you work with Diana Ross on? Diana, well, I met her earlier, and then I didn't, and then I was working with uh, Kiss, Jean Simmons. And she was with uh, Jean at the time, and we met again, but I didn't work with her. And then after that, she became producer with ABC of three movies. It ended up she only really did one of them. And it was an excellent movie that she called me, and I we worked very hard on it. It was about schizophrenia, and she was playing the mother of a young girl who was having schizophrenia, and her mother, the grandma, was also schizophrenic. And that's what happens. Schizophrenia Schizo- runs line. through. It doesn't even skip it when she was also. Mm. It just it, it goes through the the women. <clears throat> It's true of Marilyn Monroe and her mother mm. and herself and her sister. Mm. Well, do that, journalists have degrees then? Because my mother was schizophrenic. She was schizophrenic, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, the degrees. 
And so we were working on that together for a, quite a, a while up in her place. It was fun. Uh, but, uh, and, you know, I, and that was fascinating. So when material comes to me from my white clients, it's hard put to find something <laughs> really interesting other than some sort of, and it's television, of course, it's really very, very, unless it's Sopranos. I loved working, coaching on The Sopranos, because that was like coaching on plays, because you could take any Sopranos episode and put it right on the stage. Mm -hmm. It was so funny, mm -hmm. so well-conceived and written. The characters were so terrific. So that I would I like doing. But if it's some kind of movie, it's usually, uh, uh, you know, not very good, uh, <laughs> or God help us, you know. Uh, White ennui. Uh, you know, uh, what do they call Hallmark or Lifetime or something. And there's nothing terribly interesting in it. I mean, I'm happy that as an acting teacher, I'm always involved with plays because plays are something that keep giving. You, you, don't, you don't ever get enough out of plays. Mm. Uh, particularly, of course, you're going to do Chekhov and Shakespeare. You can you can be that forever. You could just stay in a room and forever and forever read them, and you never get enough. It always more is coming. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, in, uh, in black film and black um, uh, theater, uh, there was always something to dig into, and you found it, and you found, and it was always... Very funny and very sad and very everything. So you, I just loved it so much more. I could just, uh, you know, you were swimming in it. Mm. So even ones that didn't quite do well was interesting working on, uh, like Buck and the Preacher, for instance, which... which You got to give us some of your resume because it's not online. Nobody could go online and find it. So you got to give really? us some... I went online. I tried to find... You know, there, you have this very... Just very, not much of a digital footprint. And coaching, uh, well, that wouldn't be a, a lot on IMDb. That's not a lot on IMDb. So tell us oh, some of the... coaching, I see. Be, uh, <laughs> I thought, yeah, IMDb. I am listed with credit. So occasional coaching, I did get a credit. So tell us some us. credits. You got to tell us something. <clears throat> how, how can I... Because I couldn't find on. it online. Buck and the Preacher. Buck and the Preacher. Before that, I did, uh, it was called The Angel Levine, which was with, also with Belafonte. But I had worked on <clears throat> a couple of films before that. There was, uh, uh, you know, that I would work with the, quote, star of the film. Occasionally, I was uh, hired by the director. There was a, a couple of miniseries. Um, one was called, and these were awful, Lace 2. And it was uh, Harem, which happened to have been Ava Gardner's last uh, work. And Omar Sharif, oh. it may have been his last, too, because I don't know where he was. And you got to work with Ava and Omar? Ava and Omar and, uh, uh, what's her name, Julia, uh, who I really love, Julia um, Miles. Mm. And... Um, uh, oh God, and and of course, uh, Yafit Koto was in that. So I did get to work with Yafit earlier when he was doing um, Great White Hope when he replaced uh, James Earl Jones. Have you, you worked with James before? Uh, with James, I never actually worked with James. I just adored him so much. What about Cecily? I'm going to name names. Cecily, I did once. I was called upon. She had a different. Um, 
coach who happened to be away. And so I was called. And I must say that wasn't a really very uh, nice time because <laughs> Cecily had a couple of problems as a younger, younger person. She used to get uh, some kind of situation where she would stiffen up and 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 couldn't move. Oh. So I thought she was so brilliant. And as a young person, when she was doing those days of live television, even in the early days of TV, uh, but uh, she was. This was on stage. This was mm. when she was doing to be young, gifted, and black in uh, the village. And so she was not happy because her own coach was away. Paul Mann. I've worked with Ruby and Asi mm -hmm. Davis a lot. I really, really miss them too. They were like. You know, they were like this. To me, they were the pair. Mm. They were the first man and first lady of the, of theater. the theater. And because they were real and they were honest and they were fabulous and they were so talented. And I loved them too. And I worked a lot with them, not necessarily uh, film, although Ruby was in Buck and the Preacher, but theater and they had a television. They also had a little television show that they were given in the afternoons, I think, on Sunday. Mm. Um, so I worked with them. <clears throat> but there, it's, I don't know where it would be listed. <coughs> and, uh, you know, and as an actor, I was, I, I was planning, like the early 80s, to maybe move to L.A., and didn't want to, and then I didn't have to because I got very lucky, and I got to work with Robert Stigwood, three films wow. all overlapping. So I said, oh, I don't have to go to L.A. to make money. I can make money in New York. And uh, so that was uh, three things I was involved with. One was called Times Square, and the uh, one never got on, which was the sequel to Saturday Night Fever. It got on much later. Uh, and one was um, Garbo, uh, not Garbo Talks, that was with City Limit. Um, what was the third one? Times Square. Da, da, da. Oh, it's the big one. Oh, The Fan. Okay. Which is a kind of a cult film with Lauren Bacall. And and, and that I worked on from beginning to end. And so you worked with Lauren Bacall? <clears throat> oh, yes. That was another big chapter. Talk about a diva. <laughs> but here was a diva that wasn't, she was a child too, but it was really hard to get past her being mean to get to, so I just stayed clear and I better stay clear because she was, she looked like she was going to kill me if I got anywhere near her. <laughs> but then strangely enough, at the very end of the shoot, uh, we all had to be together because I was working with a young man who, and the director uh, of that movie. And we all had to be together in this one scene. And in the one scene, she, uh, I went near her and became a little bit of her entourage because they wanted to hear about her, her stories, you know, although they were. She's got to have great stories. She had, and she loved telling them. And I said, well, let me get nearby so I can hear it. And James Garner was on it. He was very nice and I'd known him before. So, but. Uh, so I'd sit with him, but she had her eye on Garner. So he said, you better not sit too close. You better sit close. <laughs> not that we were doing anything, but she was after him. And uh, she, she was a bit of a vulture, to mm. tell you the truth. So she, uh, Miss, Miss Bacall, I still felt real sorry for her because everybody who'd been through the system, <clears throat> and she was very young when she was went to Hollywood, and anybody who's been through all that, 
I want to heal them. I want to admire them. I mean, Judy Garland I, makes me cry what happened to them. Mm. I worked, I'm currently in a lot in this book about Carrie Fisher because mm. I love Carrie, and to me that was tragic. Mm. So all the people that, particularly females, that suffered from that system. So uh, let's go with Carrie. What what was the suffering? I mean, early days they owned you. You couldn't, you know, do other movies. But Carrie's, a, I think of her as a contemporary. What would she suffer going through the, through the studio well, she, system? Uh, because L.A. doesn't change. She suffered being a child of people who went through the system. Got it. Debbie Reynolds <laughs> and Eddie Fisher. Mm-hmm. The children of those stars, too. I wanted to once write a book about how many committed suicide, mm. which even includes Paul Newman, mm. Edward G. Robinson, James Arness. How many became drug addicts? How many, how many committed uh, or attempted suicide? Which is the Fonda children. The so Bing Crosby had two sons, both committed suicide. So I wanted to write a book because it would be a study of. American greed, really, and American royalty, which mm. is movie stars. And um, so to me, uh, Carrie was a, a terrible victim of all of that. But she herself was, as in the book continually says over and over, bipolar. So she had a lot of problems mm. and she was a drug addict. And, but, yeah, Carrie, um, yeah, so I just... I want to sad you, about Carrie. I knew that she wasn't going to make it, and then I knew her mother was going to die twenty four hours later, because I knew Debbie could never live without her. Mm. It's interesting that you say this because I sometimes look at myself when I look at you know what I see, feel like I observe, and I'm like, oh, are you just being bitter? Are you just being jealous? But it it often seems to me like the 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 star system feels like there's mm-hmm. some pimps at the top. We don't even really know who they are or their names, but you don't get to be a certain level of star unless you're in their stable. They could prevent it. They can prevent you, but in order, if you're not in their stable, it ain't going to happen. And that there's just these prices that people pay and we don't even know what they are, you know, but that when you get to a certain level, it's because somebody owns you and they're making a lot more money off of you than you are ever making. And there are certain things you can't say and certain things you can't do. And that's the compromise you have to make in order. And I, you know, I I don't have that. So, but it's kind of my observation is that. It's true. And it will be ever more in the news now that Harvey Weinstein trial is starting. Uh, Because even people who had big careers like Ashley Judd are going to be speaking up. But, <clears throat> and they certainly can prevent it from happening. They certainly can, quote, blacklist you. Mm-hmm. That even happened again with a movie I was talking about, The Fan, um, the young fellow in it, who is no longer a young fellow, uh, Michael Bean, that was going to put him over the top. Uh, he was selected by Robert Stigwood because he saw him in some magazine. I don't know why. But anyway, Stigwood <clears throat> then... Uh, kind of blacklisted him mm. because he gave away the ending in some interview with some uh, reporter on the West Coast, and he didn't mean to. <clears throat> and, he, and he said to the reporter, you're not going to print this. And the reporter said, no, I'm not going to print this. And, she, and so he didn't work for like six years. So they, they can do a lot. There's a lot of power up there. 
And uh, these people who get into power, I, of course, despise them because mm -hmm. anybody who wants power is somebody I immediately despise. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. I despise, well, this is not going to help me, but so I better not say, <clears throat> you know, uh, people who want to have power over other people. I don't understand what that mm. is, but obviously it exists in, in certain human beings. Yeah. And there's definitely that in the entertainment industry. The entertainment industry was also very infiltrated by the mafia, the mob in the early days, because it was another place that they could make a profit. That meant you had to... And you could listen. launder a lot of money. Yeah, and you launder a lot of money and this. <clears throat> You had to be part of the firm, as now they're talking about the royalty in England that way. But I guess in a lot of industries, you have that. And uh, somehow in the arts industry, it's really the saddest because the people that are being, uh, uh, you know, you exploited and used and told what to do and stopped from working and all of that are very vulnerable people. These are artists, actors, musicians, composers, writers, people who don't want to have power over other people but need to express themselves. And that need to express themselves makes them easily exploitable, uh, exploitable and victimized by these other people. So it is sad. And I have always seen that, even from a very young, when I first went out there to Hollywood, I smelled it. And I said, oh, my goodness, this is a really bad place. Mm. It's a bad thing. And I couldn't understand why a black performer, I remember saying to Ross Cash, how could you move out here? Mm. It, it, to me, out there, was there was even, uh, you could almost see the barbed wire. It was like in the South. You know, you could say, well, the, you can't, this is the railroad tracks. This is where you live. Mm. I mean, why would you want to be there? And then the few that would pop out and be in Bel Air or something like right. Sydney. <laughs> but, right. But Harry never wanted to go out there, and rightfully so. He and I had both strong feelings against against that atmosphere. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah. So in terms of the business... Yeah, I, I am very outspoken about it. It hasn't helped me, maybe, in my own little job hunts, but you're, I, you're doing okay, aren't you? Yeah, I, well, okay, meaning you know, as long as I'm in control of it, I say, starting yes. a class, and want to come into the class. What class? On. Tell us about the class. Well, the classes, I just started one again. I've never stopped teaching. Absolutely. So if a big coaching job comes up or an acting job, which occasionally comes up or a, a tour, <clears throat> then I will hold off the classes. But uh, um, uh, And then it will have to take second place for that period of time. But I'll never stop teaching. <laughs> I'll never stop teaching. People, Uta Hagen, who was my mentor, who, who made me a teacher, she said, the day I don't want to go into classes, the day I will stop teaching. I don't know if she followed that through, but I, I understand it. I mean, I could be tired sometimes and think, oh, no, I have to go over to the class. <laughs> but I'll never stop teaching. Because what does it give you? I, I, I think it's just something that's in you, teaching. Uh, I, I don't know. I know that when I was uh, eight years old, uh, I would babysit and be the monitor of younger kids. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, that I just 
always felt I had to take care of people. And uh, I love teaching. Yeah, I love it. And you teach at On the Road Repertory Company? No, well, that's something separate. Oh. On the Road Repertory Company started in 2012. Okay. And I started teaching in 1962. So there was a little bit of a Okay, so what is the name of the school you have? <laughs> the school I don't have. I'm, I'm just a, independent. For 15 years, I taught it at HB Studio, which was called Herbert Berghoff Studio at that time. And then after that, I went on my own. And so that was in the late 70s. I've been on my own ever since. So how do people find you? Uh, well, it's always been word of mouth, but maybe now. Well, here's some word of mouth. This is word of mouth. How do we find Alice Spivak? Who well, want to coach with her? If you want to, you can you can go to Classes at gmail.com. Okay. All right. Classes at gmail.com. I've never advertised, Tanya, this is kind of weird. One, of course, I started out at HB Studio, so they did all the, I was just in the faculty, and I developed my own group of people, and I became popular within the school. But when I went out on my own, then, of course, if you wanted to make some dough, you had to like advertise. I never did. It was all based on people who remembered me, who told somebody else, or casting people or producers and directors who knew me and would send people to me. And that would be for either coaching or the classes. So it, both of those things, I've never really had an ad. It's always been uh, someone told someone who told someone. So it means that I can have very low times, and that's all right, too. And, um, and, but I'm always enough to have a class, so I just started one. <laughs> and my classes these days are only advanced scene study because I uh, would love to teach technique and uh, beginners. I do that anyway. I would On one-on-one, -on -one, I teach any level of actor. But for classes, they have to have had experience and or training, and then I can get into really good material. So I really love teaching about plays and theater. And I tell everybody, unless you know about plays and theater, you'll never get a television job. Mm. Because all the British actors who take all your roles, <laughs> any color actor... About this, Miss Arivo. Now, you're gonna. They're gonna. She's doing Harriet Tubman. All the iconic American heroes and heroines are played by British people. Get that. <laughs> you will find out in the awards when they start speaking in their own dialect. However, I said that 25 years ago. I saw that happening. And uh, beyond that, uh, more than 25 years ago, in the 50s of the last century, uh, the Brits started to take over New York theater. And Actors' Equity, the union, uh, stepped in and said, you, you cannot have uh, an English actor playing in New York unless an American actor can play in the West End or, or off the West End. And so they had a deal. And that deal remains. But Screen Actors Guild, which is now SAG-AFTRA, never made any deal. So all the British actors come in. And, and, and Australian. It, well, Australian is part of the UK. So you have Australia, even. I used to put Canada in it, but I don't as so much anymore. But it was Canada, uh, Ireland, Wales, England, 
Australia are all the actors. And so as our wrap-up advice, how are we American actors going to compete with the Brits? Which is why I still teach and probably will be teaching even after I die and I'll be in my grave. (laughs) Because my, uh, my story, what I tell everybody is, unless you know as much as they know, you're not going to be able to win the role. Mm. And it takes a lot of doing. They, they cut their teeth in the theater. They know the classics. So when they get something for a TV pilot, which is a doctor, a lawyer, a whatever, they know what else to do with it to make it something. Because anything written for TV, other than maybe some of the streaming shows these days, uh, but anything written for TV has no subtext, has no originality, has nothing. It's just copycat formula writing. And it's very hard to add. You have to add some subtext to it, whereas you look at a play and you have to dig to find the subtext, and it will be there if you know how to dig in. But with a, the television play and a lot of movie scripts, if you dig in, you'll just fall down on the floor. There's nothing there. It's only what it says on the surface. You know, Shakespeare also, there's no subtext, but look what it says on the surface. (laughs) But in movies and TV, what it says on the surface is something you've heard before a million times and and it doesn't really matter and actors will say it the way they want to say it anyway. But the British actor comes in and says, oh dear, look at this. So he's a lawyer. It's in an office. Well, this reminds me of Richard II. When the uh, and he st- and they start to look into what else is going on that they can invent and put in, and then you get these incredibly interesting characters that were never written down because the people who are writing for TV haven't got a clue about character. They only know this is a prostitute, this is a shopkeeper, this is a housewife. They only have categories. They don't have character like plays do. So the Brit brings in the character and they get the role, whether it's Kate Winslet or Nicole Kidman or, uh, you know, uh, Russell Crowe and, and Christian Bale and every single one of them, and now Cynthia Revo and that wonderful gal, I always forget her name, who did... Lupita Nyong'o? Yeah, she's marvelous. Also, the the gal who played Ruth in uh, The Last uh, Raisin in the Sun. Nega? Uh, Ruth Nega? Oh, no, she's wonderful, too. I know you're talking about Sophie. Yeah, Sophie. Yes. They're wonderful. Yeah, they are. Now, there are wonderful uh, American actors, too, but they can't win that role if they can't bring it something in that wasn't there Mm -hmm. to begin with. Because it's not there in in television and film scripts. It's just an outline. It's nothing there. You know, a a movie script is written three times. You, You have a movie script. Hopefully it's perfect. You've got it all together. You've got all the scenes numbered. Then you shoot it. You rewrite it all based on the actor, based on the weather, based on time. Then you finish the shooting, you get rid of everybody, and you rewrite it all in the editing room. So yes. now you're rewriting it all again. So there is nothing there. But So in that beginning, when an American actor comes in to see uh, someone for a job, what are they going to bring with them into that? What, what background can they bring with them? 
into that part because it's highly competitive. And since nobody wants to pay anything anymore, everybody is working for less than they would normally work for if there weren't such a thing as salary suppression. Mm. Uh, they just, the, the, the casting or the producer or whatever just says next, if that person puts up a fight at all, no, the next, we have somebody else who can come in and who can read for it. So auditioning is very, very difficult here. I had a British actor who was in my class who said, it's so strange. He said, when I go uh, to audition in England and they they call me for a part, uh, it can be 12 other men that they call. And here when I'm called, they cast this wide net. They may be seeing hundreds of people. And if it's black, they could be 16 to 80. It's just yeah, somebody black matter. in the 16 to 80 range. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> just doesn't, a black person. Doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And, and then what's really sad these days, and it's I'm fighting it because we see so many more, thank God, so many more black faces, a lot of them British, in film and in on television that the young white actor coming up is this, this sort of reverse kind of racism saying, well, if you're not black, you can't get anything. And when they write all ethnicities, it means I can't get a job. And I, you know, and I can't, I said, shut up. How dare you? How dare you say that the blacks are p- keeping you from working? Let's look at history here. Don't worry about it. You'll get your job. Just get better. Get better. How are you going to compete? You didn't compete with that person. And so there, it's an interesting, a lot of stuff going on. You were saying one of the differences between then and now. Now there seems to be a great many more opportunities. We have, I don't know how many channels and 5 million streaming things and Hulu and Disney and Netflix and all of this stuff and no work for people. So how does that make sense? So uh, <laughs> there are so many opportunities and for some reason harder to get a job. Of that people. is true, my experience as well. Exactly. And uh, anybody who's had backgrounds such as you are finding it harder to get a job in a time when all this opportunity supposedly is there. Well, I think it's because the net has been cast wider and because of self-tapes and the dearth of material, they're more casting directors. So they're casting directors who have maybe just cast for the first time. They don't know the actors who work all the time, but then that's opening it up for a whole bunch of actors who haven't worked all the time. And so now you're competing with a thousand people yeah. rather than the 10 because they're getting tapes from all over the world. And maybe they get bored after the first 20 ta- tapes and you weren't in the first 20 tapes, so you didn't get the job. Or I've even had things where I've gone in for something you know, episodic, not too deep, and they've been like, we wanted to come back to make an adjustment. Uh-huh. And I'm like, did they look at my resume? Like, can I look at my reel to know that I can make an adjustment? Then I'll come back in and do the adjustment, and I still won't get the job. So I'm like, you know what? Y'all not looking for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. You would just y'all don't y'all don't need me. It to come used work to mean you. something. We used to have at least even in terms of money, TVQ. You know, we, you'd if you made uh, did a certain number of jobs at scale, you were certainly going up from scale. Now, no, I still go in there for scale. You know, Everybody because, scale. That's it. So this, this, that's called salary. Unless you're in the right harem. Yes. If well, you're then, in the right then harem. you jump up, and then there's such a again disparity, just like there is in this country, right. between what one person makes and what the generally public makes. So this, this uh, 
salary suppression actually started in the 90s, I think, really seriously of the last century, where it really clamped down on no more TVQ. <clears throat> you know, you don't and no more even getting paid what you your rate was. <clears throat> you have no rate. That's, right. that's what the TVQ yeah, is. happening for directors no and everything. No more rate. Yeah. So they've done that. And then, as you say, they cast the wider net around the globe because of self-taping. And uh, and nobody knows anything. But there's a little bit of that was true way back when. In the early days of Hollywood, I remember hearing the story. You know, anybody could become a casting director in Hollywood. I remember one who became uh, the casting director for all of NBC. And I think that the, her... Her credentials were that she babysat some actress who was in some nighttime soap. I forgot her name, her child. So she became the casting director. So the casting directors were just, and there were they would be new ones. And the story goes that um, it was Shelley Winters, I think, who who came up, yeah, probably Shelley, came uh, to a casting director's office in L.A., and and the young woman behind the desk says, so tell me what you've done. And Shelley reached into her bag, and she took out two Oscars, and she hit, put it on the desk. <laughs> and she says, now tell me what you've done. <laughs> and that's a great note. And for my dog with Alice feedback. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Always a pleasure talking to you. I know. And I and you are one of my favorites. So oh, there you thank are. You. This is a brilliant challenge. Thank you. Well, you are listening to You Can't Say That, the show where you can on the Broadway Podcast Network. And I am Tanya Pinkins. And thank you to my guest, Alice Feedback. Thanks for listening to You Can't Say That, the show where you can. I'm Tanya Pinkins, and You Can't Say That is part of the Broadway Podcast Network, produced by Dory Berenstein and Alan Seals, edited by Derek Gunther, with music by Kat Dale. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast highly wherever you stream. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Tanya Pinkins. And to learn more, visit bpn.fm forward slash YCST. Stay safe. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.